All right. Why don't we start kicking things off? I want to be respectful of our time. We have miles to travel tonight, and I want to make yes. sure we get to our destination. Um, I'm Will Fitz, <clears throat> the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Uh, Library Company of Philadelphia, for those of you who don't know about it, was founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731 uh, in our 289-year history now. Uh, we've gone through a lot of different iterations, beginning with sort of serving as the first Library of Congress, but now today we've evolved into this very powerful research library, uh, a destination for anybody working in early American literature, history, uh, and culture more broadly. Uh, so we have a fellowship program that brings in all sorts of terrific scholars and uh, a fantastic set of collections that I'm hoping that we can entice our speaker to come and enjoy for his next book. Finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't um, uh, speak to the circumstances under which we're recording this. Um, I certainly had some question in my mind about whether or not we should pause all of our programming given all of the unrest right now. But I actually think that um, this particular topic is really well suited. I mean, we're talking about the great emancipator, Abraham Lincoln, and we're talking about infectious disease, really, um, two of the sort of key issues that we're uh, reckoning with right now. Frankly, this is a difficult time. It's a difficult time for everybody. And uh, while I normally have a call to action that relates to the library company, today I want you to think about if there's something you can do to participate in your community. Certainly in Philadelphia, we have 800 folks that have been arrested since Saturday. Um, so if you want to support those folks to show some solidarity, there's a wonderful website called phillybailfund.org. I encourage you to use that. I'll drop a link in the chat. Um, again, really supporting those First Amendment rights as folks voice best. <clears throat> so with that, I'd like to introduce our speaker. And we've had a little bit of a shift in our speaker um, configuration. Originally, we were thinking there was going to be Carol Murphy. We've had to reschedule her, but we have an amazing replacement uh, who's sort of in the same basic ballpark. It's David J. Kent. He is a lifelong Abraham Lincoln researcher, career scientist, vice president of the Lincoln Group of the District of Columbia, and a board member of the Abraham Lincoln Institute. So you've got Lincoln covered there. Um, his most recent book is Lincoln, The Man Who Saved America, and he's written extensively on Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison. Kent writes a regular book review column in the Lincolnian, publishes many articles in, and, and reviews, excuse me, and gives regular public talks. David's next book project uh, focuses on Lincoln's interest in technology. Very interesting. So with that, let me turn over the, uh, the, uh, the car keys to our esteemed guest, David. Hey, uh, thanks, Will, and thanks to everybody else. Uh, let me uh, share my screen here, and let's talk about uh, Lincoln and viruses. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, not only Lincoln and viruses, but maybe some of the other diseases that Lincoln had and uh, others had at that time period. But I also want to do a little bit different and kind of compare this to our present situation. I mean, we obviously are dealing with a virus. So that's what's really stimulated this, this entire topic. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, so let's start with Lincoln. We, we know that, uh, I think everybody here probably knows that Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address on November 19th, 1863. He, uh, he took the train up to Gettysburg and um, sat through a two-hour classical oration by the keynote speaker, uh, Edward Everett. 
Now, Lincoln wasn't the keynote. He was just kind of an afterthought. They said, well, you know, maybe we can, maybe we should have the president come up and give a few appropriate And so after listening to uh, Edward Everett for two hours, Lincoln uh, sat down and in two and a half minutes gave, uh, the, gave us the Gettysburg Address, which if nothing else, gave us something all to memorize in grade school. So Lincoln gets up there and gives his Gettysburg Address. Now, a lot of people don't know that Lincoln really wasn't feeling well that day. You know, he was feeling a little dizzy, looked a little drawn. And on the train back to Washington, he started getting massive headaches, which was very unusual for him. By the time he got to Washington, he was feeling very ill. And he climbs into bed, and he doesn't leave there basically for three weeks which again is very unusual. Lincoln was not somebody who spent a lot of time sleeping. You know, he would, he would wake up at all hours at, in the night worrying about the Civil War. And he wasn't much of a sleeper to begin with. So we, we have a case where he's obviously something was wrong. So after a few days, he's, he's, he's getting also huge backaches. And it's, it's, then he starts to get a scarlet rash on his skin. And the doctors thought, well, he must have scarlet fever then. Um, but then the skin started to create little bumps, and eventually these bumps got into a, a you know the, the very typical shape, and they realized that he had smallpox. So he was in bed for about three weeks, and um, eventually he was okay. He got up uh, in the middle of December. He, he went to the theater, uh, and I think in part to uh, show that he was still alive because he wasn't doing his daily you know, uh, what he called his public opinion baths, people coming into the White House to, to see what was, to talk to him about getting jobs and, and give their peace of mind. So, so what is, is smallpox exactly? Um, this is a pretty, pretty um, bad case of smallpox. I mean, Lincoln didn't have anything like this, but this, this young girl um, has smallpox covering her entire face. You can see it on her skin. And uh, like down on her arm, you can see under this iconic uh, smallpox shape. It's a, um, a disc-shaped bump. Um, it's vesicular, which means it, it, it's got a liquid in a space inside it, which is you know, one of the ways it spreads. It kind of leaks out. It's, it's a pus as the immunity response. Immune response kicks in to try to get rid of it. Um, so Lincoln, when we look at Lincoln, we think, well, wait a second, you know, we had pet photographs of Lincoln after this, after he had uh, smallpox. It must not have been that that bad, you know, and probably it wasn't that bad, at least on his face, <clears throat> because smallpox, uh, the pox comes from at least pockmarks, at least, you know, sore, um, little, little like divots in your, in your skin. Uh, that's pretty obvious. Um, that lasts forever. So he, we didn't see that in the photographs. So he, he probably didn't have it very bad on his face. We don't know how bad he had it on his skin. Uh, we do know that, <clears throat> excuse me, at the time, the, uh, the doctors mainly referred, thought of it as being a mild form of smallpox, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, something that they called varioloid, uh, which is a mild form of smallpox. Uh, and so, they basically wrote it off as just, oh, it's just a mile. No, don't worry about it. It's very low. Um, but uh, more recently, in around 2007, a pair of doctors looked closer at the record. And they thought, well, 
maybe he had smallpox a lot worse than they're letting on. Uh, and they look through the the symptomology, which granted was very limited. You had just what little reports was made and what people wrote in diaries. We obviously don't have MRIs and x-rays and or even photographs of his skin. But when you look through all of the things he went through and the fact that he was uh, laid out for three weeks and that he did get these characteristic uh, uh, bumps on his, on his skin and they did uh, dry up and fall off, which is what happens if, if, if uh, smallpox doesn't kill you, um, most people survive, you know, they, and it falls off and their skin looks, you know, fairly close to normal, although it does have a pockmarks usually. <clears throat> so uh, they looked back at that and they thought, well, he probably had something very serious uh, and he could have died if it had gotten worse. Now, obviously he didn't die, he didn't get worse. So it was obviously minor, but this gives us a little bit of a lesson, I think, as researchers going forward, because mostly when we mention this, if we mention it at all, it's maybe one line. Say so he went to Gettysburg and on the way back, he got a mild case of smallpox and then he was okay. Or maybe you go a few sentences or a paragraph where you know, really deep dives might give you a whole page talking about it. Um, although they might, in the whole page, they're probably also talking about William Johnson, who was Lincoln's valet, an African-American, free African-American valet that went up to Gettysburg with him um, and got smallpox after uh, they came back and he actually died. Um, and I don't have time to go into it now, but if, if you want in the questions, I can talk more about William Johnson and Lincoln because Lincoln did some really uh, interesting and incredible things for, for Johnson after the uh, after he died. So <clears throat> so Lincoln, um, Link, well, we, so I mentioned that we researchers, we, we tend to just kind of write it off. Um, some people though say, well, he had a mild form of smallpox. It was from uh, variola minor versus variola major, which is the two strains of smallpox that are that are that are, are very mild and, and very uh, very severe. Well, the doctors didn't know that then. Those things, those strains, weren't discovered until the early twentieth century, and very and the mild version of smallpox wasn't actually known as a disease until then. So when they say varioloid, they're really both doing, they're probably doing two things. One is it's mild because it didn't kill him and he didn't get the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, infection that, that this girl did. But it's also mild because, you know, well, we don't want to tell people that he's really, really sick and, he, and, and he, maybe he might die because that'll just scare the country We're in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, we don't want that. So we have to be careful when we look at, um, when we just kind of repeat things we see without looking back at the original sources. And I saw that in science and I see that uh, in history. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the virus itself. This is the, the smallpox virus and it's described uh, like brick-like. <clears throat> um, I don't know how much this looks like a brick to you, maybe the middle part, but it's described as brick-like. It's a, uh, it's something that, it, like the coronavirus that we're dealing with today, it gets into your body through your nasal passages and in your throat. Um, but for smallpox, it then goes and attacks your skin, like we saw in that last picture. The coronavirus um, looks a little different. It's rounder. It's, uh, it's called a corona in part 
because um, Corona is Latin for, for crown-like, and I guess this could look like a crown. I like to look at it as a scientist. I like to look at it as it looks like the sun, especially when you have a full solar eclipse where the moon is covering up everything in the sun except the ring around, around the edge. That's called the corona. And if you look up close with a telescope on that corona, you can see solar flares flying out, which look a lot like these red, these red proteins that are sticking out of the coronavirus. Um, by the way, this red, the red, there's a little orange and a couple of small little green, those are different kinds of proteins. The inner part that looks gray, that's the part that when you wash your hands with soap, the soap pulls that apart makes it fall apart and the, and the whole thing just falls apart. That's why it's so important for the coronavirus to wash your hands a lot uh, with, with soap and water. Now there's another difference between these. Um, the smallpox virus um, had been around for a long, long time in humans, you know, centuries, maybe even, maybe even thousands of years going back to the ancient Egyptians, which meant humans had developed a certain amount of immunity to it. We had, we had antibodies, which people have probably heard about recently. And that those antibodies, that's what kickstarts our immune system when this gets into our body and you can help fight it. Now it doesn't always fight it because you know, there were plenty of people, there were epidemics at the time in Washington and New York and Chicago and probably Philadelphia that showed um, you know, a lot of people dying. Um, but it does help, it gets, it, it, it saves a lot of people. Um, another difference is that for smallpox, there was a vaccine. It had been invented, um, it developed uh, 60 something years before in the late 1790s in England. And it was used, it was used in Europe and it was even used in the United States. Uh, some of the soldiers got, got smallpox vaccine and, um, and it helped protect them. Now, not everybody got the vaccine. It was kind of sporadic, especially where Lincoln came from and the Pioneer and out, out West, they probably didn't get vaccinated. <clears throat> Lincoln probably didn't get vaccinated, although we don't know for sure, but he probably didn't. <clears throat> the, in contrast, the coronavirus that we're dealing with today, you've heard the phrase novel coronavirus. Novel means new. And when they say new, it refers to in humans. Uh, coronavirus has had been around in animals, probably in bats, <clears throat> and then from bats, it probably mutated into a into another animal, um, which several different animals have been talked about, but probably got into another animal, and then mutated into to the point where it could jump to humans, and that was only this past like past fall, which is why you hear COVID nineteen. The nineteen means 2019 is when it became a human uh, virus, and it gets into humans. Now, because of that, there are we have no immunity to it at all, so we have nothing to protect ourselves from it. There's no vaccine. Uh, we still don't have <clears throat> we still don't have uh, any effective treatments. There've been some things tried, but it's very new. So that's why it's so important for us to like, keep our distance because anytime we get close to somebody, we have a chance of spreading it. We want to slow the spread enough that we, that you know, we reduce the number of cases and we don't overwhelm our, our system. So those are the those are the two viruses that we have to deal with. Now I will say something about viruses is that uh, both of these are we don't they they're not considered alive. 
<clears throat> they don't they can't reproduce on their own like all other organisms so what they do is they get close to a cell and they inject their genetic material they, they inject their rna into the cell and they trick the cell into reproducing the virus and then the cell gets damaged and the, the, the virus then reproduced virus goes moves on gets other cells and tricks them into reproducing it and that's how it spreads internally so i said that the the smallpox is mostly on the surface and you saw the picture with uh, the, the girl with all the smallpox lesions on her skin coronavirus um, starts in the same place in the nose and throat then ends up going down further into your lungs. If you could just picture those kind of lesions on the inside of your lungs, you can get an idea of why it's so difficult uh, for some people to breathe when they get very, very difficult cases, very severe cases, and why you need ventilators. <clears throat> so those are a, a couple of the things that I wanna mention about vaccines. <clears throat> now, let me talk about a few other things related to Lincoln. Um, these are a couple of, of of documents that come from the library company of philadelphia's collection uh the, the one on the left is a funeral car you can see horses pulling uh, a carriage with lincoln's coffin on it uh, they would stop the train periodically on the way back to springfield take the coffin off bring it into um, bring it into the state house usually and put it on display for people to pa go past and, and pay their respects um, the one on the right is an actual photograph from, from around that time period showing some of the bunting, the black bunting and, and other things on some of the buildings. And all of this being available to us, these are available to us online. They've been digitized, which I'll talk about a little bit. Um, not everything is, but we can do a lot of research looking at these. Now, for example, you know, Lincoln obviously died, you know, assassinated by bullet. <clears throat> But he did have other, besides smallpox, he did have other diseases during the course of his life. Um, he probably had malaria uh, a couple of times during his life. Uh, the first would have been when the whole family was moving from Indiana to Illinois. And, and uh, they all came down with, or most of them came down with what was called ague, A-G-U-E, uh, which is a temperate climate version of malaria. Uh, and they all survived, obviously, and they had kind of a miserable year and a miserable fall, and then they went into the winter of deep snow. So, you know, you can, that's why, you know, Thomas Lincoln, the father, decided that he would, you know, like, bring the family back to Illinois, you know. Never quite got there, and Lincoln went on his own to, to New Salem. Well, in New Salem, Lincoln probably also had malaria. Uh, there was a t period about five years after this that he was in New Salem, and he had to be taken care of for several weeks by the family that he was boarding with. So he probably had malaria on at least two occasions. Now malaria is not a viral disease. It's actually caused by um, a single cell microorganism called plasmodium that's transmitted by mosquitoes. Mosquito will bite another person or, or an animal that has this plasmodium in the bloodstream and then transfer it to, to another human. And that's how it transferred that disease. There, there. Other than that, Lincoln was fairly, uh, fairly healthy. He was a very strong, nimble, athletic kind of guy. Uh, swinging an axe can build up a lot of muscles. Um, he did have, though, something that was called melancholy. Melancholy is um, something also he would be called sometimes um, hypochondria or the hypo. Uh, we think of hypochondria today 
uh, it's, you know, it's when you, you feel like you're sick, even though there's no physical reason for you to be sick. And people say that, well, it's all in your head. You're not really sick. That's kind of right in a way, when you look back at what it, what it originally meant, hypochondria and melancholy both mean depression. And Lincoln had at least a couple of episodes where he was severely depressed to the point where uh, his friends and family uh, thought that, you know, maybe he was be a danger to himself and they, they took away his pocket knife. Um, you know, those are, those are cases where he got very depressed. Now, other times they would just say, you know, melancholy that I don't think he was actually depressed at all. He was simply thinking. You know, Lincoln was the kind of person who he would tell jokes. He could sound very manic at times. Um, and then there would be times to be very quiet and be off on his own. Well, some of those times, maybe he was a little depressed. And other times he might have just had some problem he was thinking through in his head because he would do that. Uh, another disease that was suggested he had was something um, was mercury poisoning. Uh, mercury poisoning from taking something called blue mass pills. Blue mass pills contained a lot of mercury, and mercury is a neurotoxin. Now, uh, Ward Hill Lamon, who was a friend of, of Lincoln and had known him for a long time out in Illinois and came back to, came to Washington with him, um, in his book, which was actually ghostwritten by another guy who didn't particularly like Lincoln, um, they suggest that uh, Lincoln has been taking these blue mass pills pretty regularly for 20 years. And that 20 years of taking these pills, uh, that it's just not going to happen. I mean, he would have been showing pretty severe neurological damage if he'd been taking them for 20 years. Lincoln himself suggested that he might have taken it once or twice or a few times. He said, yeah, I, I tried it, but it made me cross, it made me angry. And he didn't like it, so he stopped taking it. So I don't think he actually had anything close to mercury poisoning, and I don't think he took blue mass pills anywhere near the kind of thing the amount that um, that Ward Hill Lamon said. Um, let me jump to another uh, item from the Library Company Philadelphia collection. This is a, a detail of uh, one corner of a page in uh, newspaper ads um, for Charles S. Rand, who's a graduate of pharmacy. Not, not a pharmacist, not a doctor, but a graduate of pharmacy. His standards were a little different then. Um, and that he can make drugs and chemicals and he can make a vaccine for uh, what I presume was smallpox, which was the big virus uh, at the time. And it makes you think, you know, well, this is interesting. You know, here's a guy that says an advertisement. He can make you drugs and chemicals and vaccines. But when you dig deeper, you can see that um, there, it was a different time. You don't have the kind of pharmaceutical companies, multinational pharmaceutical companies you have today. You, you, Squibb, I think, and, and maybe DuPont might have been doing some of that work in that time frame, maybe a little after. I'm not sure when they got started. But they certainly weren't producing pharmaceuticals that get sent to your local CVS and they just uh, count out the number of pills. You actually had to get them made by the pharmacist. Um, there also weren't the standards, that the international standards that we have now. So when you go to CVS and you get 20 milligrams of some medication, it's 20 milligrams of that medication and it's high, high quality. Um, and you can expect that every time. Here, they would each individually make the product and they would have been making these blue mass pills by putting in the 
putting in uh, mercury and putting in the other components and putting in the glue to make them into pills and you know, to hold them together. And they might say, well, you know, I've got a lot of this because I just got a new shipment in. I better use up the old stuff and put in a little extra mercury or they might not have much left and put in a little less mercury. Um, they're trying to make more of a profit. So they put in less and they put in more filler. Um, and even if they use exactly the same amount of mercury every time, uh, the, the purity may not be the same. It may be vastly different. So you can get a lot of information to start digging into to something like this. Um, I also want to talk, use this and talk a little bit about uh, doing research today. Um, back in the day, you know, everyone that was doing research had to you know, first find the, the documents that they were looking for. And there, there may not have been uh, a list anywhere, a catalog. And even if there was, you had to go to the Library of Congress or the National Archives or the library company or any of a hundred libraries around the country and and look for uh, look through the files and find the documents. And then once you found the document, you had to read it, which wasn't always that easy to do. Uh, a lot of people's handwriting was just terrible. Uh, Lincoln's luckily is uh, pretty fairly easy to read. Sometimes it's not so so easy, but most of the time it's easy to read. Versus somebody like Montgomery Meigs, the quartermaster general during the Civil War, he had horrible handwriting. Nobody could read that. Somebody spent hours and hours and weeks and weeks trying to transcribe the letters that they had from him because his handwriting was so bad. You know, another problem is that um, a lot of these documents, uh, letters especially, are written in pencil. So pencil fades over time and rubs off, and it's very hard to read. Even if they wrote in pen, uh, remember pens, we weren't ballpoint pens. People were writing in pens where they had dipped into the ink, inkwell. So they would get little drops, splotches, and, and smears on the page. Um, then because paper was hard to come by, you would flip over the page and write on the back of the page in ink. And the paper was also very thin. So looking at a page, you can see, you can see both sides, um, and it's hard to read because of that. And uh, hopefully this thunderstorm won't, won't knock out our power. Um, so it made it a little difficult to do. So libraries started putting things online and digitizing them. Uh, a lot of different places have a lot of the, the collections online. Not everything. You still have to dig into some of the files, but a lot of the digital a lot of the work is digitized now. Uh, a colleague of mine in the Lincoln Group of, of DC, Karen Needles, has a, a digital archives project where she's been at the National Archives um, every day, more or less, for 15 years or so, um, digitizing a lot of documents that uh, are related to Lincoln, but aren't letters. You know, a lot of other projects will look at letters to and from Lincoln. Um, these are documents that might be uh, discharges from the army or execution orders or, you know, uh, promotions, a lot of different things that are in the archives that haven't been captured by some of these other programs. So you have a lot of this information being digitized and put online for people to access, which makes it a lot easier for us uh, researchers. Um, the other aspect I mentioned is transcription, uh, you know, up into the past, you would have to have a researcher transcribe something that they found and they might walk away the transcription and use it in their, in their research. 
but there's no permanent record of that transcription left in the file. Now they've started doing that. You can do that online. A lot of the transcriptions are online. Um, the Library of Congress, I have to say, in the last couple of years has taken that a step further. They said, well, we only have so much time to transcribe all of these thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions maybe of papers. So they've gone to crowdfund, uh, crowdsourcing. You, know, you can sign up on their website and um, volunteer to transcribe letters that are that they put up online in high resolution uh, images and you may have two people that transcribe the same letter and then you go back and the and the librarian or the expert will look at it and say oh these are exactly the same it looks just like what we have here in the letter you know that's we have a good transcription and if there if there's some disparities between the two the uh, the, the expert can um, look at this and say you know well here we uh, uh, here, here we can figure out what these words are and we can get a master transcription. It makes it so much easier, so much easier to do research today, which is, which is great. Um, so let me, let me move on and I'll talk about communicating all of this research about viruses and about, uh, about any other research that we do. And give an example that kind of give you and I walk you through how I came to tonight. Um, this idea of, uh, of a blog post, you know, that uh, I did a blog post on Lincoln getting a virus, wrote soon after we all started getting locked down, you know, we all get st stuck at home. And I, well, everybody has viruses on their mind and they're probably wondering about viruses, you know, what are viruses, you know, has there anybody in history gotten viruses? It's something new, you know, we've all heard about 1918 uh, virus epidemic. Well, I said, well, Lincoln had a virus and there's some people who think he died. Let me write a post that time Lincoln got a virus and almost died. So that's how this all started. Put that on Facebook and it got picked up by this Rail Splitter podcast. Now, if you haven't heard of the Rail Splitter podcast, I, I, I highly recommend it. Um, Jeremy and Nick and Mary, they do, I guess, more or less weekly do a podcast, which is like FDR's original fireside chat on radio. It's just audio. And they talk about Lincoln or and or the Civil War, and they'll do uh, book reviews. They reviewed my my Lincoln book um, a couple of years ago when it came out, and there really is um, you know, really is a lot of information that they go through during that time. So we spent like an hour talking about Lincoln and viruses, and went into a lot more detail on on Lincoln and the viruses and William Johnson, and and uh, things like that. So. Um, so it's not it's not a carbon copy of what I'm talking about tonight. So it's definitely worth doing. Well, that led to being interviewed by Carol Adrian Murphy, who is working on the Civil War Medicine documentary series. Uh, and Carol called me and we talked about uh, Civil War Medicine, viruses. Uh, we talked about um, uh, Lincoln's interest in science and technology, which is the topic of the book I'm working on now. And, um, you know, we we got a lot of mutual good trading of information and things. Well, that was a few weeks ago, several weeks ago. And then Carol called me up last Friday and said, well, you know what? I'm supposed to be talk giving tonight's uh, library company of Philadelphia fireside chat, but I have a conflict. I can't do it. I mean, would you be interested? So she hooked me up with Will Fenton and Will and I talked last Friday afternoon and said, you know, this is a good topic. We can, we can talk about this. So the reason I'm mentioning is this because 
you know, we had we have all of this information, all of these ways to reach a broader audience now than we used to. We write blogs on websites. We have a podcast. We have a documentary, a video documentary series. We have a Zoom meeting fireside chat on on through the Library Company of Philadelphia. And there's a lot of other ways to do things. Um, just to give you another example, real quick. Uh, 2013, when my first book was coming out on Nikola Tesla, I hooked up with the president of the Tesla Science Foundation, which is actually based in Philadelphia. And he hooked me up with the uh, people that were putting, putting together a Tesla um, off-Broadway play. And I went up to New York and sat down with the director and the writer and the cast of this off-Broadway play. And we talked about Te Nikola Tesla. We talked about um, some of the things in the script that a couple of things that I thought needed to be changed, you know, and gave some background on some of the characters. And the play, when it opened a, a month or two later, um, was a huge hit. It, it, it sold out every single night for the entire run on this off-Broadway in this off-Broadway theater, which is actually uh, about uh, a short walk from the Cooper Union, where Lincoln gave his famous Cooper Union speech. So that's just one way. And if you think, well, that's off-Broadway, that's small potatoes. <clears throat> Hamilton. Hamilton started off as a book by Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow, you know, the book actually did pretty well as, as big, thick you know, history books go. And yet... Somebody sat down and said, and, and said, you know, this would make a great rap musical on Broadway. And they made a rap musical on Broadway. And it's, a, it was, it's such a huge hit that I couldn't even see it in Broadway. I had to go to Chicago to see it. Um, you know, I'm a Lincoln, I'm a, I'm a history geek, and I learned a lot of things just in the, in the musical. And to the point where I had to go back and get Ron Chernow's book and read it to, to learn more about somebody that is incredibly important to our history. To, to the United States history, and yet very few people hear much about. So here we are, we have, we have a blog post, we have a podcast, we have a documentary series, we have fireside chat, we have an off-Broadway play, a, a Broadway play, all of these different ways to reach a bigger audience. <clears throat> so I, I, I <laughs> sorry, the thunder is in the background. So I thought that, um, these are all important things, and I think it's important for us to reach out to a broader audience. Now, not only can we just reach a broader audience through these other measures, we have the, all this modern technology, which we're using tonight. You know, Zoom and the other uh, video uh, conferencing uh, software like it, they were created for businesses. I used to do Zoom uh, not Zoom before this is before Zoom, but I used to do these video conferencing um, when I was working out of uh, my previous company's office in Brussels, and we'd have people from Brussels and and Washington D.C. and and Shanghai and uh, places all over Europe, all on these conference calls, um, and they were great. You know, you could see the person and you could converse with them. Now the technology is much much better, and people are so comfortable with video technology that instead of just business people using it, not only do we use it for, for a meeting like tonight, but you know, people use it to talk to their grandmother. Grand, grandmothers know how to use Zoom and that opens up an opportunity for us to reach a much wider 
um, audience. In fact, I've seen, I've been on many Zoom meetings in the, the last couple of months while we're at all at home. And uh, it's common to take a Zoom meeting like this, and, and, and I hope this is being done tonight, but you know, share it on Facebook pages. And so Facebook Live can, can reach all sorts of people who you know, have less ability to interact. You can't ask questions, but you, know, you, can, you can watch the, the, watch it as it's occurring and then watch the video afterwards. So I think that's incredibly important. Um, I also think it's important to relate to today's world. Um, as, as Will mentioned, uh, there's a lot of uh, protesting going on right now um, because uh, another black man was, was an unarmed black man was killed um, for no real reason. And there are a lot, so a lot of people protesting in the streets. And when people start complaining, so, well, there's some vandalism and there's, there's some, some um, looting going on, which, you know, I, I don't condone, but, you know, you have to realize there's a long history. This wasn't just because one man or even several people were, were killed. We have to go back to our entire history of this country. And long before, in 1619, when slaves were first brought to the United States, um, the Constitution's inability to get rid of slavery when they're putting the Constitution together, the entire antebellum period and the compromises leading up to the Civil War, the, the, the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, um, to uh, uh, the Jim Crow era, to segregation, to the Civil Rights era. I mean, we've gone through 150 years plus, and, and 400 if you want to go all the way back, of there being uh, uh, racial strife in this country. And so that's a kind of thing where we should be in a position to help people understand the long history of this and understand it and try to apply it to today's world. And one more thing I want to mention uh, about today's world is, as everybody knows, people don't read anymore, or they don't, they read less. It, some of us read a lot. I read a lot of books, but most people don't read that many books. They're much more into graphics, which is why things like these online um, devices we've been talking about are so important. But graphics is very important. Grab this is uh, this is my Lincoln book that uh, that came out a couple years ago. And unlike other Lincoln books and other most books, technical books, where you write the um, you write the book and and it's essentially you might have some pictures in the middle and that's it. Um, I wanted to reach a graphic audience, so you know I started putting you know large pictures in there, and um, I won't go through this whole thing. I promise. You know, there's just there's just a lot of photographs and, and different types of graphics in there, and that grabbed a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily pick up a book about Lincoln. I want to finish one slide. I want to give, leave you with a quote from Lincoln. Um, in this coronavirus days, Abe says, stay home, going out is dangerous. You know, fight COVID-19, because we're all worried about COVID-19, so we have to stay home. Um, I have to say, though, I can't guarantee that this is an actual quote from Abraham Lincoln. I haven't been able to get the uh, citation. Um, plus, I got it off the internet, and, and Lincoln himself said, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. So we'll, we'll just go from there. But that's, that's the end of my presentation anyway, so we can go to questions, questions now. Excellent. All right. Hope that it works. So um, I want to dive right into questions. Normally, I love to start off with one of my elaborate questions, but I want to make sure that we create space for everybody who has uh, okay. attentively listened here. So we have a couple of questions about uh, William Johnson. 
Is there any way that you could tell us a little bit more about that relationship? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do a, try to do a short version so we get other questions in. William Johnson was uh, Lincoln's valet. He had been Lincoln's valet in, uh, in Springfield for about a year, a little less than a year, before he convinced Johnson and his Johnson's family to move to Washington, D.C. Um, when Lincoln became president. And Lincoln wa and, and Johnson served in the White House for only about three weeks. Um, and then there was some conflict with the, the existing uh, White House staff, which didn't like him, um, in part because he was he was brand new and in part because he was a lot darker shade of black than than most of the White House staff. And they there was a hierarchy there. Um, so Lincoln searched around and found him a job in Treasury, um, which, if, if you've been to Washington, D.C., you know, is is literally right next to the to the White House. So Johnson would still go over in the morning and be valet and shave Lincoln and, and run errands. And then he would work in, in the, the treasury in the afternoons. So um, Johnson went out, had gone up to uh, Gettysburg with Lincoln and he came back with him. And while Lincoln was recovering, at least in the in initial phases, Johnson would have still been helping him the valet. Um, but then Johnson, uh, after Lincoln uh, got better, Johnson didn't. He got he got smallpox, but not really until he didn't really get sick until early in January. So I don't think it came from Lincoln. There were a lot of other people it could come from. But he died the end of January. And Lincoln um, paid for his funeral. He arranged for the for him to be buried at Arlington National Cemetery, which was during the Civil War. Um, prior to Civil War, had been Robert E. Lee and Robert E. Lee's, Lee's wife's property, coming back down from the, that, the opposite side of the, the, the George Washington family, um, and it was taken over and made into a, a national cemetery for soldiers killed during the Civil War and beyond. He was buried there, and Lincoln bought him a, a, a headstone, and then he went and he arranged for uh, with Johnson's bank to. Um, to wipe out half of his mortgage and, John, and, and Lincoln paid the other half so that his family wouldn't be destitute. And he made sure that, that Johnson got all of his, uh, his pay so that the, the family could still survive. So he was very loyal to, to William Johnson, um, which was actually very uncommon at the time. Um, it, was, it was more common for people to bring their servants, um, even you know, free African-American servants like like William Johnson, take them from their home state or wherever to Washington, and then pretty much just abandon them and not and not take care of them. And 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 Lincoln Lincoln did. He took care of them in life and life and in death. So that was that was rather nice about uh, about Lincoln and, and Johnson's relationship. So um, Rod Ross has a question. I guess sort of grows in an interesting way in relation to this because here you're talking about his care for this um, servant, and then the question of Mary Lincoln. Why do you think there's never any mention of Mary Lincoln suffering from smallpox? Um, wouldn't she have sufficient contact with Lincoln to have become infected? Uh, it, um, I don't. I don't know exactly. I mean, nobody would know. But <clears throat> obviously, um, back that at that time, um, you know, uh, married couples didn't usually sleep in the same bed, and often not in the same room, and they had separate rooms in in the White House. Lincoln was very busy. You know, he didn't spend that much time with with Mary. Um, there is an interesting 
story uh, about that, though, because uh, when when Lincoln went up to Gettysburg, Mary didn't go. And the reason Mary didn't go is because uh, Tad was sick with smallpox or mild version of smallpox. And his was, you know, you don't hear much about him. His is very mild and he, he really didn't really didn't get it that badly at all. And it wasn't certainly wasn't in, in bed for that long. But Mary stayed back at the White House to take care of, of, of Tad. Um, and I mean, she probably didn't spend that much time with with Lincoln around that around that time period. But as far as I know, that she never showed any any signs of it. Um, John Ken Swallow asked if there were um, favorite foods that Lincoln had that were chosen specifically for health and immunity. Uh, favorite foods. Um, he liked uh, he liked fried oysters. Uh, oddly enough, given that he came from inter internal states with no no oceans, but uh, he liked fried oysters. Um, he wasn't a big eater. He would barely eat. You know, he'd have an egg and a piece of fruit maybe for and, and a glass of uh, milk, I think, in for breakfast. He might have like an apple or something at lunchtime. And if he if he ate dinner at all, it, you know, it was because somebody brought it in and put it there. He was not, it's not that he was a finicky eater. He just kept forgetting. You know, he just wasn't really into food that much. Uh, which might explain why he was six feet four and only weighed um, a little bit more than than I do. <laughs> you know, he was he was pretty thin, and that's and that's where uh, I didn't I didn't mention it, but uh, uh, there are some of the cases um, more recently suggested he had Marfan syndrome, and that's uh, characterized by being very very tall and thin, having very long arms and legs and and fingers and toes. Um, there are other characteristics of Marfan's that he doesn't fit at all, and there's like no evidence he had Marfan's. But um, but that's very characteristic, being very tall and very thin. He was very thin, but he was built very solidly. Uh, one of the things the doctors that did the autopsies said was, you know, he's chest muscles and arm muscles. He was still very solidly built, and even a few weeks before he was assassinated, when he was down at City Point. Uh, he chopped some wood for for the soldiers, and then he held out the axe at arm's length, holding it with his thumb and, and forefingers, not even his full hand, and held it out there for like a minute. Um, and, you know, I've swung an axe in my time, and, and they were a lot heavier back then. You know, it, that's, it's a pretty strong guy. So, you know, that, that suggests that some of these things were Marfan's, and there's something called men to be. That's a, another disease that more modern researchers suggested he might have that, um, you know, it probably didn't. Mm -hmm. Was, um, so the, a question from Michael Itamura, forgive me if I've mispronounced that, Michael, um, uh, was cowpox used to inoculate against smallpox in that day? Was what used? Was cowpox used to inoculate against smallpox? And would Lincoln have received that inoculation when he was younger? Yeah, I don't know what the specific, um, a vaccination consisted of at that time. Um, I knew there was a there, there was a vaccine. Um, I don't know the specifics of what kind it was. Um, as far as whether Lincoln had a vaccine, nobody knows. Uh, it's it seems not very likely. Um, after all, he got smallpox, so it didn't stop it from getting smallpox. Um, and the vaccine that had been uh, developed uh, back in the 1790s 
uh, even though it was used and and was used a little sporadically and probably not where Lincoln was, but it was it was used by soldiers. Um, it wasn't that effective. Um, uh, smallpox was only officially eradicated in in the United States in 1977, I think, um, after many new variations of vaccines by modern methods had been developed. So the vaccine, you know, wasn't used that much and it wasn't at all that effective as, you know, during that time there were epidemics of smallpox all over in Washington, New York, everywhere. You um, alluded to the sort of political calculations that had to be made around publicizing the fact that he had contracted smallpox on his way to the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. I wonder if thinking along that po that political vein, whether or not Lincoln's experience of infectious disease, whether it was smallpox or malaria, whether that experience is something that he draws upon as a well when he's looking for political rhetoric, when he's sort of, you know, uh, creating his oratory. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't know. Uh, I can't think of any oratory in which you refers to it. Um, it was a fact of life uh, back then. I mean, everybody got sick. I mean, malaria. And then, I mean, you look at uh, cholera and diphtheria and measles and, and all of these things that we don't think about today because we get vaccinated. Those were all, those killed people back then. There were a lot of people that died from diseases that we don't think about. Uh, a lot of the deaths during the Civil War, um, about two thirds of the deaths during civil war were not because of military, uh, were not because of battle injuries, they were because of disease. And and people would get, you know, they you know, they didn't have, the medicine was basically, you know, your leg is all blown up, so we have to cut it off. And then, you know, the cutting off her leg didn't kill them, it was, they would get infected. Yeah. And, and I mean, they really didn't understand everything about infections back then. And, you know, a surgeon would just, you know, he wouldn't wear gloves and, and he would just cut one light person's leg off and then he would go into the next person and he would he would just pass along infections. So mm -hmm. um, Lincoln did refer to his early experiences a lot. I mean, he, he told a lot of stories and he used a lot of anecdotes that referred back to his time on the farm um, or his time on the circuit in the lawyer circuit in, in Illinois. Um, he always had he always had a story for everything. It would either be to tell a lesson or to uh, to distract the person long enough for them to forget why they were there and leave, <laughs> which was pretty common too. Well, uh, your evocation of this, this sort of um, different types of casualties around the Civil War nicely tees up Carolyn Murphy's talk, which we have rescheduled. I can assure you that if uh, you're interested in attending another fireside chat, I believe we have her queued up Thursday, September 3rd. So, so okay. it's, a, it's a simply a postponement. Um, unfortunately, here we are at eight o'clock. Time flies. Uh, <laughs> uh, I just want to because I hear some more thunder coming in too, and I'm there is there is more thunder, and there's already questions that I can't get to. I'm sorry, John okay. Willett. I'm sorry, John Kent Swallow. We can't always get to everybody, but um, thank you for joining us every Thursday. Library Company hosts these talks. Next Thursday, seven p.m., we'll have Zach Bates, who is going to discuss William Patterson. In the Afterlives of the Patriot Opposition, 1740 to 1762. Um, with that, thank you so much for joining us, David. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you all for joining. Take care of yourselves and uh, hope to see you next time.